This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. All public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. Uh, sometimes pondering what I was going to say at a Dharma talk, and then I would get up and walk out and go up to the zendo and sit in front of the students. And uh, today I'm sitting in front of little uh, postage stamp size photo pictures of you. <laughs> so, um, it's it, it's um, it's almost like the little pictures of you are an extension of my own mind. Uh, it feels wonderfully intimate, and uh, it, it seemed to be, it, it, from this perspective, it belies the notion that you're scattered throughout the world. I, I seen Jean right in front of me and Mary, who are in part of the Belfast Sangha in Northern Ireland. Uh, Thank you for listening in, and um, I think, like um, many of us, most of us, I think the the turmoil of the last couple of weeks uh, has engaged me, perplexed me, um, left me pondering deeply. in, in, in some ways, in a personal way, um, how come it took so long for me to see that uh, systemic racism is, is rampant and, and highly influential in, in our society? Uh, and then not only that, then what to do about it? How do I, as a person, how, how do we, as followers of the Buddhist way, respond to such a situation? So in a way, that's what I'd like to talk about this morning. And I, I hope I have something uh, helpful to say. <laughs> and And maybe what I would hope for is that that helpfulness would express itself in, in a kind of a willingness to explore more thoroughly for yourself uh, the impact of, of this turmoil following the, the impact of the pandemic and maybe for most of us the impact of the economic downturn. And yet my mind turns to thinking of the, the core principle of Buddhist practice and the core principle of Zen practice. Um, which is asking us and inviting us and supporting us to be fully present 
with just how things are internally and externally. Not as a passive, a passivity, but as a deep radical honesty and acceptance. And in a way, this is what uh, the practice of Zazen is, you know, a deep, radical, honest acceptance of what's going on internally and externally. Uh, Neither battling to diminish it or struggling to control it or trying to avoid it uh, either internally or externally. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the great lessons of Zazen and awareness of who we are and how we are is that we see those ways of relating to our experience And we learn how to let them teach us what we are, who we are, and how we're relating to the world. And to find within that learning an appropriate response. There, there is a, a term in Pali, sila. And, and it's interesting, usually it's translated into English as a discipline. The uh, dictionary definition of the word discipline. And here, here's what I got. A training to obey rules or code of behavior using punishment to correct disobedience. Now, if you delve a little bit, that's the definition of discipline. Of course, we could quibble about that, but let's leave it there for now. And then if you take the word sila and you do a little exploration within Buddhism, you find out that the heritage of the original meaning was to emphasize the positive rather than rebuke the disobedience, but to... invite us to explore what is it to call forth the virtues that we're capable of. The the, the virtues in a Buddhist way that allow us to embody and express this settled acceptance of of what is. That allows us to discover literally to realize an appropriate response to who we are, what we are, and what is facing us in our world. Mm. I couldn't help but thinking as I was reflecting on those terms that uh, there's a way we can look at the notion of law and order, you know, the, the, the notion that... Uh, these more necessities within a functional society. And of course, in a way they are, you know, 
if a society is going to function well, there has to be a harmony. And a harmony is usually comes around with an acceptance uh, of helpful ways to be together. Uh, and, and, but it's, to my mind, it's, it's interesting to contrast the helpful way to be together with what you might call the punishment of disobedience. And on the other hand, promoting the virtues of well-being that, uh, that we're all thoroughly capable of. In some ways, I think as a society, this is what we're struggling with right now. And, and may, maybe in a societal way, we're enacting what I think of as, as a struggle each one of us engages uh, within our own being, within our own activity. How do I find within my own being a way to let the, the nobility of spirit, the, uh, the natural impulse towards generosity and compassion and caring and benevolence, how do I find a way to let that flourish and not let myself get distracted and, and uh, led away by competition, aggression, you know, avoidance, uh, preoccupation with what I want, whether that serves anyone else or not. How do we pick that up? Yeah. And, and the term sila is the way of being that enables that process. Yeah. The, the way of being that has at its core that aspiration of benevolence, that aspiration of being in a way it helps us realizing, to realize the awakened nature of our being. You know, I, I can see, as and probably you can too, that that's maybe an abstraction in contrast to the practicalities and the particulars that are confronting us as a society yeah. and confronting each of us as a person. But I think there's a helpfulness in starting there. You know? there's, there's a helpfulness in um, kind of a holding still. There's a helpfulness in seeing what happens internally in my own process also happens collectively in our group process. And in and, and Buddhism and Zen, they teach that um, this kind of holding still, 
this it is kind of letting something be witnessed, experienced, accepted, integrated into into our being um, helps to create the foundation of being that helps us respond to our life singularly and collectively respond to that life in a virtuous way in a way that literally will promote the harmony of being that we yearn for i mean our, our, the very organism that we are is in, in a constant search for a homeostasis, a, harmon a harmonized way of well-being. And we search for the same as a society. So I'd like to read you a poem by uh, Billy Collins. I think part of the, the interesting uh, particularity of poetry is that it's trying to give us a sense of something rather than give us an idea or a concept by which to understand it. Yeah. To give us a sense of it that we can relate to it maybe in a heartfelt way, maybe just in a deeper way than our thinking. So here's the poem. I ask you, what scene would I want to be enveloped in more than this one? An ordinary night at the kitchen table, floral wallpaper pressing in, white cabinets full of glass, the telephone silent, the pen tilted back in my hand. But beyond this table, there is nothing that I need. Not even a job that allow, would allow me to row to work or a coffee-colored Aston Martin DV4 with cracked green leather seats. No, it's all here. The clear ovals of a glass of water, a small crate of oranges, a book on Stalin, not to mention the odd snarling fish on the frame in the wall. And the way these three candles, each a different height, are singing in perfect harmony. So forgive me if I lower my head now and listen to a short brass candle as he makes a solo while my heart thrums under my shirt. Frog on the edge of the pond, my thoughts fly off to a province made of one enormous sky with a million branches. There's always, in every moment, the opportunity to breathe, the opportunity to pause, and feel, okay, this is it. This is uh, what's happening. 
This is what I am right now. This is what our society is right now. This is the state of the planet. This is the political character of the of United States right now, of the world. And that allowing, that accepting, it helps to create uh, a foundation of benevolence. In its okayness, in its acceptance, there's a way in which our reactivism, the way we react to what's happening, is softened. And it starts to create the possibility of responding. You know, they're very different. You know, a reactiveness is a, uh, a defensive mechanism. You know? Whether that mechanism is driven by fear or aggression, uh, it has an unexamined impulsiveness. That question, what were you thinking? Well, usually we weren't thinking, we were reacting. Something instinctual about our survival mechanism was asserting itself. And as we find and take the time to just be, the, 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 the picture of what's happening starts to come into focus. And as it does, there is an alchemy that we're part of. There, there's a way in which the innate capacity for thoughtfulness, the innate capacity to, to see this for what it is, this being, this moment, this thought, this feeling, this response to a particular circumstance or set of circumstances. It's like the particulars of the moment become held in a spaciousness. Doesn't mean it's always pleasant. But in contrast to the reactiveness, the thoughtfulness, the spaciousness, the openness allow for um, an intentional response. And, and this is the essence of, of what our practice asks of us. This is how we can relate to the circumstances internally and externally that with benevolence. 
And that benevolence, uh, it, it, it calls forth uh, from within us a different set of responses. In our reactiveness, there's an implicit us and them. There is a necessity for a harsh law and order. There is a necessity for a discipline that punishes disobedience. In our reactiveness, it seems like that's the only option we have. And, and in this settled, more spacious response, even though at times it might be heartbreaking, you know, the, the term sila, the, the attribute sila, it comes from a teaching, a Buddhist teaching of six paramitas, six dispositions, six characteristics that each human being is capable of that promote well-being, individually and collectively. The first one is generosity. The second one is sila, this um, intentional well-being and the virtue it creates. And the third one is patience. Acknowledging this is not a smooth, simple flow for us. Internally, anyone who's tried to meditate for 20 minutes has discovered uh, that the mind and the emotions and the imagination and, and the memories and the anticipations, uh, they, they pour forth with the determination. You know? And then it's asking of us a great patience. And, and similarly with each other, you know? How many times has every one of us been annoyed, frustrated, disappointed in someone, in someone else by them being who they are, you know? We're frustrated that they are who they are. Why can't they be who we prefer them to be? So it, it's not that this is a simple matter, personally or collectively. It's not that this um, is the automatic impulse of our being. It, it's much more intriguing than that. There's something about it that is our heart's desire. And then there's within us this, an attempt, a wish to thrive, survive, that can easily be triggered, where we fall into a contracted 
limited way of thinking and feeling about our life. And the paramitas are a teaching on, on how to stimulate the positive attributes we're capable of. And the, the marvelous thing about them is that we, they're not simply an abstract teaching. They're, they're a way that we can bring into our world, into our relationships, into our activities, the, these positive attributes. The first one, generosity. Uh, that if we think of life as a scarcity, you know, well then we need to compete. There is a a scarce commodity of what supports life. And we need to compete with others to um, have enough to provide for our own needs and to survive. Um, but if we think of life as a constant uh, exchange, as a constant give and take, you know, th then what life is, is it's, it's a mutual process of benevolence. It's a mutual process of sustaining each other. There's an old Celtic saying that says, we take shelter in each other. In contrast to, um, we need to compete. And sometimes, like when you, when you, in that poem I read by Billy Collins, you can say that he's receiving all the objects of his immediate environment. He's, there's a natural appreciation. There's a natural uh, gratitude. Someone gave me a book a couple of days ago. And, and the, the book is called 99 Blessings. And, and the, what the author did was each day for 99 days, he wrote down what he was grateful for. And then he made it into a book. The author is Brother David Stantelrest, a Benedictine monk. And you know, he considers this to be his primary practice, this appreciation. And I'd suggest to you that the appreciation, the, um, the acceptance, the holding still, the allowing what is to be what it is, uh, nurtures our being. It, 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 it intertwines with the sila, 
the aspirational characteristics that promote our well-being. And as we internalize them, then we can externalize them. Sometimes it's the other way around. We offer the helping hand. We, we, we support someone else and, and feel the richness and the nurturance of that. It's sometimes it's easier to help others than to help ourselves. It's just the complexity of our being. But either way, if we engage it, something starts to grow. And I would suggest to you, this is what our society is asking of us now. How do we enter? How do we engage this, this world that's inflamed? How, how do we meet the, the ways in which we've gone astray, that we've taken notions of law and order and turned them into oppression, that, that we've allowed them to accumulate a bias in which rather than serving society, they're... Um, they're distorting our natural tendencies towards harmony. And I would say to you, from this place of settledness, we can admit that. We can accept that without a reactive need to create an us and them. Every human being has this impulsive tendency to support their own survival. And every human being has this capacity to settle, to open, to be thoughtful, to meet the world with generosity and compassion and benevolence. This is our challenge. And how do we see this in others that maybe our initial tendency is to see them as other? Well, that's the source of the problem. That's the person who's doing things wrong. That's the aspect of our society that's corrupt and malevolent. Um, There's an early Buddhist teaching that says, hatred never resolves hatred. Hatred perpetuates hatred. So to to see that, and and I think there are signs of hopefulness, you know. When just reading the accounts were when the oppression stopped, the protests became more orderly. They were less violent. They were were less oppositional. 
and, and that we can trust that process, uh, promote it, participate in a way that embodies it. And then I, I think as Zen practitioners, we, we can also hold it um, within our own being. We, we can let the external be internalized. We can let the internalized be externalized. Uh, and, and I would say to you that the notion of benevolence is a thoroughly practical one. Yeah. It seems like that there are things that have happened th that those who perpetrated them need to be held accountable. Uh, that may be so. But it doesn't require malevolence. It, it doesn't require our harsh judgments. It requires our patient, deep understanding of the human condition. That any one of us can readily and easily go astray. And I would say we have, hopefully never in a grossly harmful way, but every one of us is in need of forgiveness. And, and not to be dismayed by that notion, but rather to see, oh, well, in that forgiveness, we learn renewal. In that forgiveness, we learn a practical understanding of what we're capable of. We learn a skillful way of bringing benevolence and compassion and patience into the world. That's uh, this, this curious request of our life. You know? That as, as we look for um, a deeper sense of justice, as, as we look for our way forward, uh, I would say that looking for who exactly is the enemy is not as fruitful as, as looking for how do we create a virtuous renewal. How do we remember? How do we rediscover and reconnect to what is in all of our hearts? You know, there's something we yearn for. I think of a poem by Nazim Ahmed. Things I didn't know I loved. And he's sitting on a train and he goes through as he dry, as the train rides through the night. 
different aspects of his own life and de little details within them that he find nourishing, that, that opened his heart. Um, who couldn't benefit from such a way of being? Who couldn't benefit through consideration of forgiveness? of others, of themselves. It's interesting how usually those two are intertwined. No. That is, we forgive others. We're more honest about our own uh, participation in what went wrong. Uh, and, we're, and we're more capable of owning it and accepting it. And we're more capable of forgiving others. So I think of this as a time of amazing possibility that um, that somehow we've been sleepwalking in 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 relationship to the, the gross injustices that are built into our society. Yeah. Yesterday, someone who's a senior doctor in one of San Francisco hospitals, uh, and the interns working under him are mostly people of color. And two of them are African-American men. And they were telling him, well, when I'm driving home after my shift at the hospital, I usually keep on my doctor's white coat. And I keep on my badge that has my ID and says underneath it, doctor. Just in case I get stopped. And then by the police. And then they can see, oh, this is a doctor. It's a sorry statement of our society. It's something we should collectively endeavor to remedy. How can we be fully happy in a society that has such behaviors within it? But it doesn't necessitate an us and them. It doesn't necessitate, you know, the virtuous and the villainous. Our ancestors, along with us, have created it. It needs to be deeply, honestly accepted. Okay, this is how it is. Someone was telling me recently that she read with horror 
her great-great-grandmother's uh, journal. Growing up in the South, her great-great-grandmother had read in the Bible some detail of the Bible where people were pinned by their ear to a post. So she rounded up the children of the slaves that they owned on their plantation and pinned their ears to a post. Thankfully, we're horrified by such notions now. But for her at the time, it was just a kind of uh, curiosity. The, the unexaminedness of causing others suffering. May we learn deeply from it. May, may we see within ourselves the necessity of virtue, the necessity of benevolence, of compassion, of forgiveness. This is how we'll collectively make the world we want to live in. We have extraordinary capacity as human beings. And then in some ways, we're extraordinarily low, slow to learn our lessons. I mean, slavery was not abolished last week or last year. No, it's, it's amazing that rooting out its institutionalization its systemic pervasiveness, uh, it's amazing. It's taking us so long. But so be it. We can move forward. Forgiving ourselves, uh, forgiving each other. forgiving those who have been caught up in this unbalanced world in ways that makes them look like the perpetrators. From a Buddhist perspective, the interbeing, the way in which we all collaborate no, in known ways and unknown ways to create the world we're living in. Uh, it's asking for forgiveness. This is the activity of Zazen. This is the activity of the aspiration to bring practice into our lives. This is the, the benevolence of not giving up on anyone. In Mahayana Buddhism, of which Zen is a part, we say, beings are numberless, 
I vow to support every one of them to awaken. Delusions are inexhaustible. Will this be a turning point in our society? And from now on, will it manifest in a marvelous, innocent way? Probably not. Can we make a positive step in the right direction? Let's hope so. Uh, we are capable of love. It's our heart's desire. What a mysterious notion that it isn't more pervasive in our world. That we're more capable and readily attracted towards violence and war than we are towards love and mutual help. This is the great mystery that each of us is challenged with. And in some ways, the paramis, the paramitas, they, they offer us a tangible way forward. We don't have to have thoroughly enlightened the deeper recesses of our being. In our everyday activities, in the quiet way we notice we've drifted into thought, we can pause, we can bring it back. So let me end by reading Billy Collins's poem again. I hope in hearing it, you can hear the simplicity, the ease, which which he comes into present moment. The ease he savors what's happening in that moment. And the acceptance that allows his heart to grow quiet and whimsical. I ask you, what scene would I want to be enveloped in more than this one? An ordinary night at the kitchen table, floral wallpaper pressing in, white cabinets full of glass, the telephone silent, the pen tilted back in my hand. But beyond this table, there's nothing I need, not even a job that would allow me to row to work or a coffee-colored Aston Martin DB4 with cracked green leather seats. No, it's all here. The clear ovals of a glass of water, a small crate of oranges, a book on Stalin, not to mention the odd snarling fish in a frame on the wall. And the way these three candles, each a different height, are singing in perfect harmony. So forgive me 
if I lower my head now and listen to a short brass candle as he makes a solo while my heart thrums under my shirt, frog at the edge of the pond, my thoughts fly off to a province made of one enormous sky and about a million empty branches. Thank you very much. <laughs>